it's so easy to think about what are the what are the things that I'm going to do to make my life better, right? What are the, the to-dos I have to accomplish today? And it's less natural to think about, okay, what are the things that I've been doing that I should should stop doing? You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I spent a good bit of last weekend reading a book called Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less by UVA engineering professor Lighty Klotz. It's a nice read and a very thought-provoking book that looks at the importance of thinking of less not as loss, but as a potent option in everything from Lego building to urban planning and the life-changing magic of tidying up. And by chance or not, I had also just gone shopping on my own bookshelves for a beach read and had picked out Hint Fiction, an anthology of short stories told in 25 words or fewer, edited by Robert Smartwood. It seemed like the universe wanted me to pay attention to less. And with my mind swimming with Lydie's compelling call to consider subtraction as a viable, reliable, and all too often overlooked strategy in a world that is biased towards always adding more, I went in (laughs) for more. In my defense, Lydie doesn't say less is always the way to go, just that we shouldn't ignore its potential. I dug into some of his other work at the Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative, known as CBSI at UVA. CBSI brings together scholars from the schools of engineering, architecture, policy, education, and business, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences, to engage and support dozens of faculty and students doing applied interdisciplinary research with special focus on three overlapping areas, energy systems, diversity, and well-being. My first thought when I heard about CBSI was, I'm in love. I thought, if I were going to go to grad school, this is where I would want to be. My second thought was, wait, what about doing less? Isn't this piling on, tossing engineering into psychology mix, architecture in with policy? But then my mind went back to something Lighty had said in Subtract, something he borrowed from the poet Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. To get to less, to find missing options, to think not and or subtract, but add and subtract. What matters, says Lighty, is accessing our multitudes. Now, if that isn't a call to choose to be curious, I don't know what is, and I couldn't wait to ask him about it. Lady Klotz co-founded and co-directs the Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative, author of Subtract, as well as Sustainability Through Soccer, an unexpected approach to saving our world, He fills in underexplored overlaps between engineering and behavioral science in pursuit of more sustainable systems, wherever they may be. I am delighted to have him join me today. So welcome, Lighty. Thanks, Lynn. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So let me ask you, when we first were introduced, what were some of the 
places that curiosity kind of instantly bubbled up for you in your work? What were you thinking of at first? I think, I mean, curiosity is just central to what we do. I guess first and foremost, I think is as a professor, our job is to create and share knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you boil it all down and there's aren't an infinite number of professors, which is a good thing, right? So, (laughs) so much of our work should be figuring out what is the the knowledge that needs to be created, right? And because you can always find out something new, there's also has to be kind of an art and a curiosity about, okay, what's the most important new thing that you could potentially find out? And of course, you're trying to do that while not having any idea what you will find, right? So you're constantly trying to figure out what are the interesting questions to ask. And to me, that's, that's curiosity. And that's a big part of what we do. And it's incredibly fun and important. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think, well, what's the through line between subtract and CBSI? And I want to come back to that in a minute, but first let's back up for those who didn't spend the weekend reading subtract. (laughs) Uh, What do you want listeners to know about it? I thought you did a terrific job in your intro. I mean, I think that the biggest thing the new finding that's captured in the book and that the book builds on is this idea that we we have these different options for making things better. We can add to the existing situation or we can take things away from it. And we systematically overlook and underuse one of those basic options, which is which is taking away. And you know, once we recognize that, then we can work on doing better. Right. You have a, a very nice, at the end, kind of list of takeaways that I thought was a very nice way to model subtraction. You know, let's distill it down. Yes. To yeah. Kind of inverting, trying less before trying more, because our first instinct is, for most of us, is to add more, you know, do mm-hmm. more, add more, put something, add something in, expand our thinking to both add and subtract, to allow space for subtraction in our thinking and our decision making to distill, which I think is just exactly what you were talking about, about what you Mm -hmm. do in the academy, right, is to try to distill these things. But I actually thought the last one to persist was maybe a little surprising. The others seem like, oh, yeah, right, right, right. He's going to say that. Tell me more about persist, because I really like this one. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, And it's just to to keep going. I think so often we kind of think of this end state of less and because it there's less there, it seems like it's going to be easy to get there, mm-hmm. right? That it's mm-hmm. going to be fewer steps. And what we found in the research is that actually it's more mental steps and it's more physical steps as well. So it's not that we can't think of subtraction. It's just not the first thing that pops into our head. Um, I can give an example from the research because I think it, it it probably yeah, helps illustrate what what I mean by subtracting. You know, so we had all these experiments, as you mentioned, everything from Legos to travel itineraries to the probably the most convincing one was just grids on a computer screen, right? And so people had to participants would look at these grids on a computer screen 
and they were tasked with making them symmetrical from left to right and top to bottom. And we would give them pre-filled grids so that there were extraneous marks in mm -hmm. one of the corners, right? And we had different versions of this, but you know, long story short, here's the existing situation. You're asked to make it better in, in this case, make it symmetrical. And the, the hard way to do it is to <laughs> add to three spots. The easy way to do it is to subtract from one spot and most people added. And what this is showing is that like they're thinking that, you know, as they're going through their mental process of here's this situation that I want to make better, they think, what can I add to it? And they realize, okay, if I add to three corners, I can make it better and solve the problem. And they do that and move on without even considering whether subtracting might've been a better option. Because when you later ask them, Hey, did you think about this? And they're like, Oh no, I didn't think about that. That would have been better. So we have this mental shortcut, right? Our default is to add when we're not paying attention, when we're just kind of going through life, we're going to try to add to solve situations. So that's the mental side of it. And you could think about that in your day-to-day -day life too. Just, it's so easy to think about what are the, what are the things that I'm going to do to make my life better, right? What are the, the to-dos I have to accomplish today? And it's less natural to think about, okay, what are the things that I've been doing that I should should stop doing. So that's the thinking side of it. Everything you've got to kind of think and then you've got to act, right? If you break down things into those two general stages. So when it comes to acting, you you have to have added something in so many cases to to then subtract. Even just something like a um like this podcast episode, right? Or this radio interview. You read a whole book, right? Which I spent all this time write, writing and you had to spend the weekend with that and now you're distilling it down into what the, the you know your listeners are going to be most interested in and is going to be most useful for them so by necessity to be able to subtract down to this however many half an hour or so you had to add in the first place so again it's like the the product looks streamlined stripped down but the steps are more because you added, 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 and then realized that to improve the situation even more, you needed to take away. And so that's the persist, right? This isn't easy. It's fun. <laughs> it's like, the, it's the right kind of fun, but it's not, it's not easy. It's not simple. It's not doing nothing. This is kind of the less beyond more, right? You've added mentally, you've added in the real world, and now you've realized to make this even better, you need to take even more steps and, and take away. Right. I mean, that's also the distill, right? Right. Yep. One of the things that I liked about this, I mean, so many things, but one of them was the recognitions. For instance, you use the example of reading the book in the book. <laughs> and as a reader, that's a very validating moment in the book. It's like, yes, I am putting in effort here. <laughs> and it's a, it's a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of an invitation to do that added work of distillation so that I can use it, right? It's mm -hmm. one thing to read it and just let it go past me and mm -hmm. not take the added step to distill it so that it really seeps into our bones. I think that the, you know, invert, expand, distill, persist, and the distill before persist, they necessarily feed one another, I think. Mm -hmm. And the distillation makes it a little bit easier to persist, right? Mm -hmm. 
Because if you're trying to take it all, like the fire hose in, it's overwhelming and you give up. Yeah. But if you take the time to kind of really get at its essence and go, okay, I see how I can use this, then it's easier to persist. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the other thing that's helpful, the other reason persist is in there is because you know, one of the challenges with taking away, right, is that people don't see it. Yeah. Um, and so that's the, you alluded to, hey, it feels really good that I read this book. And then you can put the book on your shelf. And that's evidence that you've kind of accumulated this information. Well, I'm going to stop with the book example. <laughs> I'm going to save my quick thinking for the the jar analogy later. But like even in music, right? So think about music or poetry or, well, your short story example, right? These are 25 word short stories. Nobody is going to read that story and say, oh, this author just couldn't think of more than 25 <laughs> words, right? It's so clear that that's what they were going for, that this was this was part of the goal, that the effort went into this, that their subtraction was showing competence or you know ability or was intentional, right? Because they persisted and got it down to 25 words. Now, if they, instead of writing a 500 word short story, they wrote a 450 word short story. Yeah, there was subtraction, but it's not really visible, right? right. I mean, people right. people might not know that that's the, the thing that you were doing. So that's, that's another benefit of persisting is that you can actually make this invisible thing visible, right? It's so obvious in those 25 word stories that that's what's making them unique. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by UVA engineering professor, Lydie Klotz. We're talking about the power of less. You have a nice line in the book about the most useful collective knowledge requires pruning. Mm. And this was actually a place where I felt like I saw a through line between subtract and the CBSI that you have all of these disciplines. If you were trying to do everything with all of the disciplines all of the time, you wouldn't get very far, right? Exactly. So yeah. by bringing them all together of necessity, there's got to be this pruning. And it, it made me think of places, you know, with, with beautiful gardens that are very carefully tended. Yeah. When you know what you're looking for, you recognize that the beauty is in the pruning that's been going on, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you see that as a through line between these two? Yeah, I think the pruning, I mean, maybe I, I see it as similar to what you're doing, right? Where you focus on curiosity and that allows you, that, that very clear focus on an idea. Now it's not an idea that's like, defined by a discipline certainly, but it, it gives you, it makes sure that you're not spreading yourself too thin, right? It's you and people are coming together around that idea. And I think that, you know, with our, with convergent research of any kind, you know, one of the best practices is that this is problem focused, right? And that's why I am interested in the intersection of behavioral science and engineering. I mean, I find it interesting, but I, I, I also think that it's, has a lot of potential to solve real world problems about, you know, energy and, and sustainability. So I think that's the thing that allows you to expand out with the disciplines when you have a very clear focus on what the real world problem is. And I know that analogous thinking is actually of interest to you. And yeah. I, you know that analogies are near and dear to my heart. I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about 
analogies as a way from going from the known to the unknown and how yeah. you see it fitting into this. Okay. So I'll explain how we got to analogies in the book. So when you think about adding and subtracting as ways to improve situations, there are kind of three basic categories of situations. One is physical things. One is our schedules, itineraries, social things. And the other one is the thoughts that are in our heads, right? And the mental models. And these are incredibly powerful. And as in all of these other cases, our default way to improve our mental models is to add to them. And in some ways, it's kind of, it's the hardest area to subtract. So one of the stories I tell is there's the Festinger a psychologist uh, infiltrated a cult because he wanted to see like what would happen if people were presented with evidence that clearly yeah. contradicted their values. Uh-huh. And it's such a brilliant experiment, right? <laughs> because it's this doomsday cult and he joins and he's going to see when the doomsday comes or doesn't come, what do the cult leaders do? So he's kind of, he's got this great scientific study in one case and he's like hedging his bets too. If, if the doomsday does come, he's in the cult, right? But anyway, the, the doomsday doesn't come uh, and they're sitting around in a room at, at midnight when it was supposed to come and they're kind of the first five minutes they're debating which is the official like clock of the apocalypse right it's like maybe that (laughs) clock is just fast and maybe it's just wrong yeah (laughs) and so they're sitting around and it gets pretty quiet and depressed and then like about four or five in the morning the cult leader was like we did it we we staved off the doomsday with our unwavering belief. And everybody was like, great. Yeah, that's what happened. And what they're doing there is, you know, they had this kind of mental model of the world that the doomsday was coming. And when they were presented with this evidence that seems to contradict what they believed before, instead of removing the wrong idea, they mash it together with the new information and modify both. This is something we all do. I mean, this is like the Festinger is like a classic example of cognitive dissonance, you know, how we resolve that. I, another example from my son, maybe closer to home, but he's a Santa Claus believer and we gave him Legos for Christmas one year. And he was like, what the heck is this? Uh, well, not we gave him Santa Claus gave him Legos. And uh, he said, what's this? And I said, it's Legos. Didn't you ask Santa for Legos? He's like, yeah, but I thought Santa just had like the wood shop and the workshop and, you know, he doesn't have the manufacturing capabilities for Legos. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. For Legos and things like that, Santa just works directly with Amazon. And my son was like, (laughs) awesome. Let's go on. And again, like the same thing's happening, right? He's got these mental models of how the world works, right? He's got his notion of Santa Claus. He's got his, he knows about Amazon. It's so clear that, you know, maybe this didn't come from the North Pole, but no, he's, he's cool, like smashing it all, all together. You know, the education scholars talk about how we learn and they call it knowledge construction, right? And there's this whole kind of movement about how do you get rid of misconceptions in students, right? They come to the classroom thinking something about how the world works. And it seems like you shouldn't be able to kind of help them learn until you've subtracted those wrong ideas. And they've kind of moved away from that model. I mean, there are a lot of good reasons why they've moved away from it. One is because you don't want to kind of invalidate cultural things that people might come to the classroom with. But the bigger reason is it's just impractical. You can't, it's really hard to get people to 
subtract things from their mental models. Okay, so now we're to analogies. How do you actually get people to subtract things from their mental models? Because what's happening is you've got these things that you already believe, they're deeply entrenched, and then you've got some new thing that comes in that tries to unseat this deeply entrenched thing, right? It's not gonna win that battle. But analogies work because you've got the new thing which partners up with some deeply entrenched thing that you already believe to fight against another deeply entrenched thing that you believe. And so now you've got, it's a more fair fight, right? B because the analogy is, is drawing a connection between what you already know and what the new information is. And so even something like, okay, the, the planets don't actually revolve in a perfect circle. You know, the planets orbit more like electrons orbit around molecules. And if people understand the electron orbiting, that helps them understand the planetary orbiting. The analogy is helpful in that scientific context. So yeah, that's the power of analogies. And as you know, from the book, there are a lot of great kind of scientific thinkers or scientific discoveries that have come from analogies. Yes, I will confess that I, I went into a deep dive on Kepler and his analogies as a result of you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, here's somebody who's really into this. I have more to read. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think in having had guests do these analogies and thinking about that through the lens of how you describe it in the book in terms of analogies offering a way to both subtract detail and sort of right. focus on the essence to kind of declutter things. And I thought, yes, and because as I watch people and now they're, they're coming up with these analogies in the moment, right? This isn't like, they're not thinking carefully about what's a really good analogy for me to explain something to my students or whatever. These are in the moment, but, but often what we do is we, we latch onto a little detail and then we move out to the essence from mm -hmm. that. And I love that as a way of thinking about sort of decluttering our thinking, mm -hmm. doing a sort of a yes and, you know, going back maybe to your invert, it's think, you know, subtract before add that there's a divergence and a convergence that happens in our analogous thinking yeah. that feels like good exercise, right? I think that's a really good point. I think the way you're using analogous thinking is, is, idea generation, right? Yeah. And I'm talking about it as like one of the ways to, one of the only ways to actually remove wrong ideas. And that's what was so powerful to me, yeah, to think of yeah. it in that, in that term as a way, you know, to go back to the sort of the pruning idea about how do you, how do you eradicate these things that are so deeply embedded in our thinking? Mm -hmm. We need tools a surprising tool of an analogy that allows right. us to to bridge to 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 jump a gap that seems impossible, impassable, impossible. Yeah, um, <laughs> hey, good job. Yeah. Um, so, can I invite you to my big jar of wannabe analogies? Oh yeah, I'm yeah okay. This is going to be a generative one. Not <laughs> absolutely, a absolutely. So, literal big jar. I have yeah, yeah. Uh, slips of paper in here. I'm going to take out three, one for you, one for me, and one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yours is donut. How is curiosity uh, like a donut? donut? Yeah, I use a donut analogy. I book, know. You so know, this is funny either. because it's not unusual that these things like feel related to other 
parts of the conversation you're working. Mine is snoring. Um, and then I have one for the audience. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go? Wait, so I have to, I just have to connect snoring? Or no, you I have to connect, have to connect, you have to donut connect donut. Donut to, to curiosity. How is curiosity like a donut? I would, that it's, a donut is such an easy one. That it's like, what's missing is just as important as what's there, right? The donut is defined by the whole, right? And um, I think it's really easy to, in curiosity, to just see what's, what's staring us right in the face, but also like noticing what's not there um, is kind of central I to love curiosity. It. I love it. And people are just going to have to go read the book to understand why that fits in all sorts of <laughs> places. I love it. Okay. So mine is snoring. How is curiosity like snoring? Um, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, like curiosity, snoring is evidence of a state of being. Um, yeah. snoring is evidence of being asleep, curiosity, not evidence of being asleep, but I would say evidence of being awake that, uh, that it is a signal that we have, that we are sinking into a state of being. Um, and while I would say, um, that snoring may be not so desirable, curiosity may be more desirable in that state of being. <laughs> I like, I think there's an, I, I liked that. There's also an element of curiosity that you can't turn off. It's kind ah, of like, something, right? You can't right? control some, it. Some part of it is involuntary. Not all of it. Certainly, you know, we can be deliberate with it, but hopefully we all have some involuntary curiosity. Uh, as we all likely have some involuntary snoring. I like it. Very nice. Very nice. And this is funny. Audience, yours is sleep. I never know what's going to come out of this jar. Apparently we have a little bit of a theme. So let me know how is curiosity like sleep on social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Lighty, thank you so much for this. You should just come back and do a PhD, Lynn, you, uh, or another one. If you told me you were going to do a PhD and the, your research plan was to do 200 interviews on curiosity and then kind of like track what happens and distill the best. I mean, everybody would be like, yeah, great. That's amazing contribution to knowledge. So yeah, can, honorary doctorate from CPSI. You got it. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton, and I've enjoyed being your host today. Thanks for joining us. You can find all my shows at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can share your sleep analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Lighty Klotz. Links to Subtract, CBSI, and other cool stuff on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Hash Out by Sunday at Slim's via Blue Dot Sessions. So what do your multitudes look like? And what happens when you choose to access them? I hope you'll join me again next week. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs> <laughs>